Welcome to Craftsmanship, a podcast discussing technical skill in the contemporary art world told through the oral history of fabricators. My name is Harriet Salmon. I independently produce this series as a free resource and as a record of the last 20 years of fabricators' experiences. Who are fabricators? A fabricator is someone hired to assist in the production of an artwork. Unlike the traditional artist-apprentice relationship that could contain an element of mentorship, a fabricator provides a technical skill to an artist as a paid service. Fabricators can be found in foundries, darkrooms, wood shops, and laboratories in roles ranging from master printmaker to studio assistant. They are part of an unseen mechanism of the contemporary art world and their skills produce objects essential to the global art economy, a market currently estimated to generate over $60 billion in annual sales. With scholars and institutions meticulously documenting the intentions of artists, who is recording the stories of these craftspeople? This podcast will document fabricators' experiences to shine a light on the amazing breadth of talent in the field and to capture this particular moment in the art world. I'm interested in conversations about hierarchies within craft versus concept, questions of intellectual property, trends of de-skilling in the art world, wealth disparity, and the conflict felt by many fabricators between working in art production and being artists in their own right. Today I'm talking with Vanessa Hoheb, a fabricator, mold maker, enlarger, project manager, and artist liaison who has worked for decades ushering large-scale artworks to fruition. Vanessa grew up working with her father, Bruce Hoheb, at Hoheb Studios in New York in the late 1960s, doing enlargements, mold making, and sculpting for local foundries on projects for legends such as Willem de Kooning and Louise Nevelson. After some time with the Metropolitan Museum of Art and even a brief time working on one of the Statue of Liberty's restorations, Vanessa dedicated over 17 years to being an artist representative at the foundry of Paulich Talix, problem solving for artists such as Nancy Graves and Frank Stella. After Paulich Talix was purchased by UAP a few years ago, Vanessa moved with a close-knit community of colleagues to project managing artworks exclusively with the trusted craftspeople at Workshop Art Fabrication Foundry in Kingston, New York. She continues to foster relationships with artists through thoughtful production management and is the founder of the American Artists Hand Archive, an ongoing collection of live castings that document how iconic artists' hands are shaped by their materials. We sat on the front porch of her New Paltz, New York home on a beautiful fall day to discuss what it means to dedicate one's life assisting artists in the creation of their work. I know that when we talked on the phone, you'd mentioned uh, talking about your father a little bit. Yeah. So I was thinking before we kind of jump into your history with Polish Talix, if we could talk a little bit about your family history and your father. And I actually dug up a photograph of Willem de Kooning standing in your father's studio from mm-hmm. 1982, That's I believe. That's right, yeah. And I was wondering if you could tell me about that photograph. That particular photograph. Mm-hmm. Over a three-year period, my father and I enlarged three sculptures for William de Kooning. Uh, they went from six-inch maquettes that he had, des- that he had made in the 60s uh-huh. to nine-foot and 12-foot monumental heroic bronzes. Okay. So uh, through his gallery, Xavier Fracad, they came to our studio and had us enlarge these pieces. And as I said, it was a three-year process where we went from the original maquette, six inches, to an intermediary size that was about 
27 inches tall. And what was the material of the... Plastiline. Plastiline. The original was bronze. Okay. He had them cast in Italy when he was there. And they sat on a shelf for 30 years. Yeah. Then his gallerist, Xavier Fercad, looked at them and thought... Actually, de Kooning's friend Henry Moore had seen them and said, these should be heroic scale. And de Kooning was, meh, he was, had his mind on other things, but his dealer, Xavier Fercad, said, this is the time. So he commissioned us to do the three enlargements. And part of that work, in addition to the traditional enlarging, three-dimensional enlarging that we did on the pantograph, and the casting of the enlargements into a resin for the foundry use mm -hmm. was to do the actual modeling. De Kooning was in his 80s at the time. He was reasonably sharp, but physically not able to do that type of work. Yeah. So we enlarged the pieces into an intermediary size of about 27 to 30 inches tall. And this gave us the opportunity to do the surface modeling, because the pantograph, like the, dig like the digital technologies today, leave a, a fingerprint. And that's like a point-to-point a, a point point machine that takes each point from the small thing and shows where it would be in ratio Precisely. on the large one. Okay. Precisely. And our particular pantograph at Hoheb Studios was not only a pointing machine, but it was also designed for scraping meaning the stylus would go over the hard surface of the original model, leaving a fluted, detailed pattern in the plastiline enlargement. Okay, cool. It can be very, very, very detailed and precise. It looks like the piece is covered with the finest layer of snow, but you get all the, all the subtle yeah. details, the bumps and the bips. But at the end of the day similar to the digital technologies, the human hand has to come in and erase those tool marks and essentially breathe the life back into the piece, yeah. the energy of the form. So doing the modeling in an intermediary stage is, is really important because it allows us, as the sculptors, to interpret the form correctly, to get our heads around it, to yeah. understand what's underneath the surface of that skin before going on to the heroic scale. Because things change, mistakes are made, it's made by hand. Uh, very often sculptors will make changes in the intermediary size before yeah. going on to the heroic scale. You don't want to do that kind of homework at a big scale. So this commission for us was huge. You can imagine how yeah. excited we were. <laughs> And it, we also had a, a time deadline because the gallery wanted to have the finished bronzes out in certain places at a certain time, mm -hmm. and we had to coordinate with the foundry. So the, the big picture was enlarge the pieces in clay, intermediary size, do the modeling, get the sculptor to approve it, cast that into resin, and use the resin intermediary to go up to the final size in clay over a welded steel armature, then make a mold, another fiberglass, and then get it to the foundry wow. for yeah. lost wax bronze casting. They generally need about a year. So these, the three sculptures were done concurrently. Is that the first time you worked with your father? Or? No. no. I started in the studio at 15, 16. Yeah. So we can go. Yeah, let's jump, let's jump back to 16. <laughs> well, 
I just I just want to I just want to talk quickly about my father because that kind of sets up my place in in space and time in terms of my mm -hmm. roots. So my dad was a New York guy, and he studied he studied medicine and civil engineering at Columbia University, where he got his degree in the fifties. And when he married my mother, he got sucked into the Italian family's construction business. Uh -huh. And he quickly went through the ranks of bricklayer to foreman to master supervisor or whatever they call them. But always he was drawn to his artwork, his sculpture. But it wasn't taken seriously, yeah. by, certainly by this Italian mafia family. <laughs> In fact, now that all these people are passed, I can... Frank Costello, who was the great uncle, said of my father's stone carving passion, he said, breaking rocks, that's what they do in prison. Oh, no. So <laughs> you can imagine my poor father, yeah. who they didn't take it very seriously. So it's not to, easy being an art kid. <laughs> right? Yeah. So to, to combat that laying brick during the day and wanting to do his own sculpture and having four, four kids, he would... He would take what he called stolen moments and go up to the Art Students League and he would draw and practice and do that. And an old timer there took him under his wing, my father, mm -hmm. Bruce Hoheb. And he said, you know, Hoheb, there is this old fashioned technique out there called pantograph three-dimensional enlarging. And there's only about five or six people left in the country who are doing it, but it's a real need. This was in the 60s. Yeah. There's a real need for this between the artists and the foundry. And he said at the end, of, this old timer said, at the end of the day, form is form. If you have the discipline to work on other people's work, it's like a pianist playing the scales all day. You'll be practicing, mm -hmm. training your hand and your eye. And when you go into the studio at the end of the day, you will have arrived. Yeah. You don't, and you'll be training on someone else's nickel if you have the discipline as an artist to work on other people's work. Mm -hmm. So my father had a great flair for modeling. He was a good mechanic. He went into the shop of a local enlarger. He saw the pantograph machine that was in use, and he went home and he built his own because that's what he would do. <laughs> mm -hmm. And slowly... But surely, the, we hit, the work started coming in from the local foundries, Beattie Mackey, Modern Art Foundry, the old wow. foundries, even Talix when it was just born in the late 60s. And so my father was out of construction and into the allied trades of sculpture. Yeah. And that old timer's name was Jacques Lipschitz. It, was very good advice. Mm -hmm. So that was, that's how Hoheb Studios was born in New York City in the late 60s. And did he do some work for the Met? Too? Later, yeah. yeah. In there, was he working in their mold making? Yeah, yeah. Still using the uh, pentagraph no. system? No, different. No. So the, the early days of enlarging at Hoheb Studios in New York City, we did enlargements, mold making, and casting for all the New York foundries. And either the work would come from the sculptors directly, yeah. who just needed their work proportionally blown up, or the work would come from the foundry. Um, and the range of the work was very diverse. It depended on the artist's involvement. Sometimes an artist just needed an armature made, 
and they took over from there. Other times they, they needed us to take it all the way through to the final modeling, yeah. or we would stop prior to the final modeling. And then what they would come in and work in our studio doing the modeling six oh. weeks, two weeks, a month, whatever. Where and then was the studio? Where? The studio was in Long Island City, which ironically is where the Italian construction family <laughs> built half of Long Island City, but be that as it may. Um, so that was the work of our studio. And in the early days, we, my father did enlargements for Alexander Archipenko, the old-timers Donald Delu, Walker Hancock, Erte, those wow. people. And it was a, a very vital, busy time. So I grew up around the studio, and about 16, 17 years old, I entered the studio as an apprentice. Yeah. Did all your siblings, or no. was it just you? No. Yeah. Of the four, um, well, actually, my brother, my brother did for a period of time uh, as a skilled woodworker. And, but he wanted to do his own thing in construction, and he went off after a few years. So I grew up in the studio, surrounded by all the mess and the tools and the, the making of things. And I just loved it. I loved the organization of it. I loved the mess of it. I loved the diversity of it. Yeah. And um, so we, we worked as a team in New York City, and then... Um, my father was also teaching anatomy and mold making at Pratt. Hmm? Funny. <laughs> One of his students, his former students, who was the mold maker in the reproduction studio at the Met, was going on maternity leave, and mm -hmm. she called him to say, you know, do you think you could fill my shoes for X months while I do this baby thing? And he said, that sounds exciting. So he went off to the Met. I ran the studio. Yeah. And then after six months, she called and said, I love this parenting thing. I'm not coming back. And my father said, you know, Vanessa, this is a really exciting scene. Yeah. And the concept of a paycheck, a steady paycheck, was thrilling. Yeah, so we closed the business end of things. Exactly. So we closed Hohib Studios in 1975, 1980, and we both went to work in the reproduction studio at the Met. Yeah, and so you were... Making exhibition copies? Were you doing conservation? No. What we did was we made molds over the original objects mm -hmm. for purposes of sale in the reproduction studio. We would yeah. make molds and masters that went off to the manufacturers. We also did a certain amount of mold making to make copies of things for curatorial study. Gotcha. But we worked very closely with the conservation lab there. Mm -hmm. Every Monday when the museum used to be closed, we would walk around to the various collections and the curators and the production people from the reproduction studio would look at certain objects for their marketability, for their interest as a reproduction. Yeah. And then they would turn and look at us as the mold makers. <laughs> but can you do it? <laughs> and can we do it? And if we could give them a 99% guarantee that it would be okay, we rejected it yeah. and went on to another sculpture. Yeah. Because once an object is marred, it's devalued forever. Yeah. No pressure. Yeah, it's only irreplaceable. Right, exactly. So I but I have to say, of. over the five years that we were there, I think we molded something like a thousand pieces wow. without any significant mishap. Yeah. If we did have the tiniest bit of something happen, we would the conservators would come in and 
But yeah. And what was the problem? Like little bits chipping off? Oh, or God, like no, no, we didn't or... get that far, no. Yeah. I mean, I remember one time I was molding a, a wooden box from Papua New Guinea that held a feather, and my wooden modeling tool setting up the parting line on the rubber mold made a tiny, tiny nick in yeah. it, and I had to call the conservation team, and they, a little bit of wax, and they were fine with it. But we never... You just didn't happen, you know. It yeah. just I remember the first day I was in the studio, a small studio with my father, and I picked up a piece of 18th century glass, and I was moving it from one table to the other, and I turned to him and I said, Dad, what happens if... And he said, it doesn't happen. And I said, yeah, but, but what happens like, if... We will not speak of it. He it said, will not doesn't be happen. in reality. <laughs> doesn't it? And it didn't. Yeah. But after five years there, uh, and the touch show, and the... They sent my father over to Egypt to work on the treasures of Tutankhamun. Wow. It was a very heady, exciting time under the cowboy directorship of Thomas Hoving. He was really something. Just that, from like a technical point of view, I'm just curious, what were you making the molds with? Like, What were you pouring the soft part of the mold in to not have it affect the items? A lot of the objects were small. Mm-hmm. So we would make block molds, and at the time we were using the Cadillac of rubber then, which was the Dow Corning Silastic E. Okay. When I had to make a mold that had a, needed a mother mold, I used either plaster or epoxy. Okay. Most of the objects were fairly small. Yeah. So 90% of them were box mold, blocks mold, block molds, and then we would make resin masters out of epoxy. Then we would make production molds from that. And do the, is there a uh, library of the masters, or were those just in the uh, production? There should have been. <laughs> there was a, a, a broom closet off to the side of the, which held these masters, and I never really found out what became of them. I felt very protective of them, but yeah. that sort of was not important mm-hmm. to anybody, it felt, except to me and my dad. Mm-hmm. So we opened up, we left the Met, yeah. and we opened up Hoheb Studios again, and that was when things were really exciting. That's when, in the 80s, 80 to 86, we worked for, the, we worked for de Kooning, I did an enlargement for Louise Nevelson. Wow. Which was a thrill of my life. Louise Nevelson came to me with a small 20-inch terracotta piece that she had sculpted. It was a fired terracotta, and it had all these wonderful textures and impressions on it. It was called Female Figure with Star. And it was an unusual job because a couple of reasons. First of all, she wanted me to take it to, to six foot tall, it was to be a one-off. It wasn't going into bronze. Ultimately, she wanted it in black fiberglass with little wheels inside so she could race it around her studio in Soho. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, so uh-huh. that was all very interesting. And, of course, it was a thrill. And it was pretty straightforward. It was a very plainer piece, but it had all these wonderful textures on it. And for me, to enlarge it in clay, I spent time making little tools that would mimic the enlarged versions of her burlap texture. Funny, yeah. And I was so excited and so into it, and it was totally fun, and I knew it was fabulous. And she came to the studio to see it, which was a thrill. She walked in, and she said, fabulous. Now, 
I want you to change it. <laughs> I want you to take all these lovely curled edges and all these fussy bits, and I want you to straighten up all the edges, bring the planes, which had a wonky surface to them, mm-hmm. to true. I want it to look, it's, a, it's now it's six foot tall and it's a different piece. I want it to look like it was made from rough hewn granite and then slightly dropped. And I understood my instructions. Okay, when you enlarge things, they become different. This is the artist's work, okay. So she left in this grand swoosh of velvet robes and eyelashes and I got to work and the hours went by and my father was working over at another bench and he came up behind me and he said, Vanessa, I think you need to go out for a cup of coffee. And I said, okay. And then he said, and when you come back into the studio, hang up your coat and hang up your ego on the hook next to it. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, I have been watching you for three hours and you've had smoke coming out of your ears. Vanessa, you did this fabulous job. She loved it. And then she asked you to change it. And you're struggling with that. And I can smell it. I can Mm -hmm. sense it. The steam coming off of you. She was gone. He said, Vanessa, it's her art. Now, I have completely grown up in the studio as a technician, as an artisan, as a craftsperson who completely embraces the idea of working on other people's work. That's my role. It's time-honored, cherished. I love it. I'm proud of it. I know that's my job. Yeah. But this time, I lost sight of that. I crossed that line, and it was a huge lesson. And I'll never forget it, and I never did that again. I was going to ask, has it ever happened since, or that was the time that you were like... That was the time. You identified the line, and you were like, now I know where it is, and it won't. But it it happened without my... I already knew that lesson. Yeah. Yeah. But I got so emotionally caught up in the work and proud of it and excited by it that I had taken ownership of it when I knew better. This was her art. So that, I always think of Louise with that great gift. She'll never know that. (laughs) But... So during that time, we did the de Kooning enlargements. We did the work for Louise Nevelson. And then... During that time, we also worked on the Statue of Liberty. So it was a very heady cup, yeah. bunch of years. Those are, that's, those are some monumental yeah. pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's amazing. And then uh, you were in Australia for a decade, doing, mm-hmm. working with foundries there. Yep. And then were you, were, did you work for um, Polish Talix before you went to Australia for a short period? Yeah. How did you end up working directly with Pollock? Well, in the in the in the late eight, in the 80s, Dick, we had worked with Dick Pollock for many, many years. We'd done yeah. a lot of work, always made a couple of bucks, had a great flow back and forth. And Dick very wisely thought to himself, enlarging should be under this roof. Yeah. Makes sense, right? Yeah, I mean he has every other step of production. Right. He did not at the time. Yeah. And he came down and he said, you know, I really would like Hoheb Studios to become part of Talix. Wow. And I got very excited by the idea. And my father, being your basic Geppetto, he said, do you ever notice when there's more than two people in the shop, I get cranky? <laughs> I, no- I noticed. <laughs> and he said, you know, I'm going to take this opportunity and 
rather than making my own art in stolen moments, I'm going to essentially retire yeah, and carve my stone and do my thing. You love being around people. You love the collaboration. You go. Yeah. So I joined Dick at Talix in Beacon from 86 to 89. Okay. And for just, I'm just going to um, kind of interject for our listeners. There's an amazing kind of portrait of Dick Pollich that's available uh, in a short film called Heat of Fusion, uh, A Life great. and the Art of Casting yes. by Stephen... Speccarelli. Uh, Speccarelli, mm-hmm. thank you. Uh, that it, go, it does such a beautiful job of kind of describing him as a uh, technician and a mm-hmm. facilitator and a foundry owner and an artist unto himself and a personality, <laughs> which I really recommend people watching kind of at the same time as listening to this because uh, it kind of explains the environment up at the foundry yeah. really well. Yeah, it's a terrific film. Stephen did a, yeah. an extraordinary job yeah. getting under the skin of it. Took a long time, a lot of work, yeah. beautiful job. Yeah, and I was, I was going to ask you actually a quote you say in that film about um, being a good fabricator requiring a discipline of ego, which kind of sounds like your story just now with Louise Nevelson is that. Absolutely. Being a need to to be a good, because I, I, I struggle with the d- difference between calling people craftspeople and artists. Like, it's hard for me to know where the person wants that line to be. I consider an amazing craftsperson to be an artist unto themselves, just based on the mastery of their craft. But everyone has a slightly different kind of feel between those two words. Like, listening to the film and the foundry, it sounds like a lot of the people that work at polished house consider themselves craftspeople. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a difference between being an artist and an artisan. Yeah. In my life and at Talix and in my current work and working with the foundries I work with now, there's a strong percentage of craftspeople who mm-hmm. work in these fabrication shops and studios who are artists. Yeah. The important distinction is, you know, the artist generates the idea the concept. The artisan or craftsman helps facilitate that, bring it into three-dimensional space, helps the artist bring it to life. Yeah. It's really critical for someone who is assisting an artist get their stuff up into space to make that distinction. And it's not for everyone. At the foundry, when new people would come in to apply for work, wouldn't take us very long to understand if they had that discipline. Was there like a question you would ask him in an interview to kind of feel out that relationship? Or no, was just working it was with more them? by observation. Yeah. Because when you think about the industrial process of translating work, uh, I'll just use the foundry as the broad example, but if, when you think about that industrial process, there are so many steps and decisions to be made at every stage along the way on behalf of the sculpture, the object. Yeah. And when, when that craftsperson and the foundry as a whole is at the top of their game, those decisions are invisible, yeah. seamless. Seamless. They should be. It's up to us as craftspeople and artisans to know when to raise the flag and know when to stop and say, I can't make this decision on behalf of the artist. I need them here. So I've always felt, and I've come across this many times as a supervisor, as the owner of a business, as the the orchestrator of a certain production, when I get the sense that that craftsperson or artisan doesn't have that discipline, 
they got to find another game. Yeah. Not a judgment on them. It's you make you need to make art. It's expensive. It's lonely. You got to find another game to pay the bills while you're doing that. Yeah. The, the the beauty of having that discipline is, as Jacques Lipschitz said, you're in the allied trades. You're around other creative people. You're exposed to techniques and disciplines all day long. It's a wonderful opportunity to network and yeah. learn a trade. So that when you close your studio door, you will have your your mind and your eye is already trained to what your hand wants to do. You don't yeah, have to go through that. Yeah, you're being paid to warm up. <laughs> so you're you're being paid on someone else's nickel, but you have to know where that line is. Yeah. Yeah. Very important line. Yeah. And, and I, many of us who are artists and artisans, you have to change your hat constantly. Mm-hmm. And it, it takes a certain level of awareness. Yeah, I think there, I, in speaking with fabricators and wa- watching people who are incredibly technically mm-hmm. skilled, there's always a moment where I feel like I can see the decision-making becoming intuitive. They're so good at what they do that they don't have to like, um, you know, mind map out a decision. They're just kind of intuitively making them. And in my mind, that's art- artistic expression, cause, but it's not in the end. It's just being very, very good artisan. Mm-hmm. In- intuition is huge. Yeah. Intuition is huge. I mean, I've worked with many artists over the years, and I can make decisions on their behalf. I know in my role now as a, I hate the word project manager, but or an artist's rep or whatever you want to call it, when I go to the foundry and I look at the work on the table, I know I'll be able to say to the, the craftsman working or the owner of the foundry, he would hate that, she would love that, proceed, yeah. I have to pick up the phone. And that only comes from years of working with the artist or just working with artists in general? Both. Both. And so our listeners know Polished Alex Foundry, which is now in uh, New Paltz? Newburgh. Newburgh. <laughs> There's a lot of news up there. It's huge. It's like an airplane hangar. It's 100,000 square feet. Uh, the first time I came in actually to meet you for a job when I was working oh, at KB right. Projects, I was just, it like took my breath away. It mm-hmm. was the largest production. I've ever seen. And I think I saw somewhere that on average there's 80 pieces on the floor at any time. Yeah, I never got a handle around that. It was hard enough for me to figure out how many people were working there. (laughs) Yeah, it was was 80 to 100. Constant buzz of energy. Mm -hmm. Everyone seems to know exactly what they're doing. Um, And you guys worked on some pretty huge pieces. I mean, I think I saw one picture of a um, Louis Bourgeois spider. Yeah. That looks like an alien invasion movie. I mean, it's like almost at the top of the it was. hangar. It, it yeah. was. The ceilings were 50 foot. And Louise's piece was uh, 26 foot tall. And it came, it, it passed the bottom of the overhead crane. Wow. So once the sculpture was assembled, the fabricators had to make sure that they installed heavy duty clamps so that there wouldn't be an oops moment of the <laughs> clamps yeah. of the cranes hitting the sculpture. And this is a bronze, 26-foot spider. Tall, yeah. How many Maman. pieces was it casted? Well, it was an interesting collaboration with Bob Spring from Modern Art Foundry, who oh, had okay. initially, originally cast that piece. Uh-huh. Um, it ran into some structural engineering problems when it was installed at Rockefeller Center. Okay. And 
going back a thousand years, being old friends and rivals. The owner of Modern Art called Dick Polich and said, we need help. And we actually collaborate. The two foundries collaborated yeah, on great. that, which was wonderful. So we did the we did the uh, structural engineering review and and amendments to the existing piece, and then cast I think we cast the second edi- another edition of it. Wow! So it was a wonderful. It was a terrific collaboration. Yeah, that's funny. Between two two rival foundries, mm-hmm. right? So it was thrilling to have the sculpture there, and as the piece was being assembled, I remember there was this um, wonderful race to see who was going to get to drive the forklift between it, underneath the legs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. and we ended up having our Christmas party that underneath it. Oh, wow. You know, That's with amazing. 50 tables set up, it was that big. And you guys always have kind of uh, engineering structural uh, is, is all that in-house do you absolutely yeah that's great absolutely any piece that's over five foot tall that's going to go out of the foundry in any public space needs to have a licensed structural engineer okay review it because yeah between the metallurgy the fabrication the welding yeah. all the welds have to be certified wow how do you check the metallurgy do you have to do like tests do you have to prove that the bronze is Mix properly. What what kind of checks do they do? Sure. On that? When when the foundry purchases its its raw supplies, they they buy the ingots of bronze or stainless mm-hmm. or aluminum from a known supplier who certifies the composition of the alloy. This way, the foundry men know what's going in the pot and what's going in the sculpture. Yeah. And you you need to stay within certain industry standards. For the longevity and the safety of the piece, it also follow the recipe. <laughs> yeah, you have, and it also has to be married to uh, the the welding that's uh-huh. to come because that's a structural thing. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of engineering that goes on. Now, did you um, speaking of kind of the metallurgy? Uh, you've did I see recently there was a piece where uh, Matthew Barney was like mixing metals. How does that work? That. There you get into into the risk taking. How uh-huh. much of a cowboy can one be? Yeah, and that was one of that was probably the greatest hallmark of Talek's foundry under Dick's direction. Uh, Dick is a risk taker. Yeah, and when Frank Stella came in the early days and wanted to, Frank would say. Well, what happens if you pour stainless steel on aluminum or vice versa? Yeah, and it's like a kid with a science kit. You're like, what happens if I add B to C? Precisely, and, and Dick would scratch his head and said, I don't know. But if it sounded reasonably safe, he would try it. Yeah. And a lot of things blow up. Yeah, but a lot of innovation happens too. That's the key. Yeah. That's, that, that to me is... Between that and and the and the level of quality and the integrity and the respect for the artists were the were the reasons that I and many people stayed there for so long. Yeah, I mean everyone loves a good problem to solve, especially if that problem's totally new, possibly going to be a disaster or an amazing thing. You yeah, know, and and many artists are the great experimenters. Yeah, and they they have an idea, and and it ranges from. An artist will come in and they know exactly what they want. They want, make this look like that. Yeah. Others are on the other end of the spectrum. They say, I have an idea, but I have no idea how to get there. 
So we roll up our sleeves and we brainstorm and we experiment. And you have people like Nancy Graves, Frank Stella, Rona Pondick, Michelle Okadonor, the list goes on and on, Michelle Okadonor, who would embrace the mistakes that happen along the way and incorporate them into the work. Yeah. Do you have a favorite um, problem that the that you or and the foundry were presented that you solved? Was there like a, a well? I think about the work of Nancy Graves, who would come up to the foundry with bags of organic material, monstera leaves, uh-huh. banana skins, flowers, seeds, pods. Sardines stinking on those strings. You know how they sell sardines <laughs> yeah. in China? Um, and she didn't want to know about traditional mold making. She just wanted to get those objects into metal. Yeah. Bronze. She, she was like, and then go into her assemblages. And in those early days, we had no idea how to cast things, organic things. We knew how to cast things in lost wax, where you invest them into ceramic mold, mm-hmm. burn them out, and pour the metal. Um, so after a series of small explosions and a lot of stuff that ended up on the <laughs> flaming floor, sardines, flaming sardines, and we learned how to prepare the surfaces so that yeah. they could receive the ceramic shell material, water-based material. Oh wow! And just burn and out then the... burn them out. And we learned what things don't burn out. Fur, yeah, fur tends to mat and look like a lump at the end of the day, no matter how you prepare it. Hair, feathers, mm-hmm. not so great. Bone leaves a certain amount of ash within the ceramic shell, and it makes for a very poor quality castings with a lot of inclusions in the casting. Other things were fantastic. Uh, Leather, wood, paper. You can pick up a fingerprint and translate these things. Wow, that's amazing. But when you have these extraordinary artists who come in with wonderful ideas... I think about the Italian foundries that I grew up around when you would go in with something that was a little bit, a little bit out of the box, and their response would be, impossible, impossible. (laughs) And Dick Polich was the opposite of that. Yeah. Um, Looking at kind of the breadth of projects you did, you also had things that, like the Oscars, at the complete other end that have to be uniform, 100% in the box, perfect. As close to that horrible word, perfect, as you can get. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, you know, you go, there's the diversity of the work, never boring. You have, when you said before, when, when you came in the first time, you were overwhelmed by the space. Yeah. Right? And many artists would come in who were not, blue chip artists with big bank accounts following them, big names. They were local artists or they were from different communities that wanted a a memorial put up, the Fireman's Memorial, a portrait to honor someone. And they would be very overwhelmed knowing this legacy of all these. And I would try to treat them equally because without artists making work, we had nothing to do. Yeah. And their work was really important. Yeah, a client and, is a client. And, and as, as Dick would often say, that sculpture is important to one person. Yeah. You, in particular at Polished Talks, have worked very intimately with the artists, uh, kind of in conversation, mm-hmm. as well as you know, physically fabricating the work. You, you're kind of a liaison between the artist and the production method. Yep. Uh, 
Can you talk a little bit about those conversations, like how you use that discipline in those conversations to make the artists feel at ease or to move the project forward? Or, I mean, there's always fraught moments in those conversations. (laughs) How to like reassure them that the process is going well, is successful? Well, for all my gabbing and talking, I get teased about talking a lot. My, my, my job is to shut up and listen. Yeah. And at the very beginning, when an artist walks in with an object, a drawing, or an idea, my job is to shut up and listen. And my personal style is to try to understand what they want it to look like at the end of the day and work backwards from that in terms of offering possible paths to mm-hmm. making it. And also very important is to get a sense of their level of involvement, what's important to them. And that that communication never gets easier over time. Yeah. Everyone is different in their style of communication. Um, and I have to really listen hard and know my own limitations to know when I can make a decision on their behalf when they're not there. Yeah. Oh, Mrs. Smith would love that. Oh, Mr. Stella would hate that. Um, I have to pick up the phone. I don't know, but I have to tell the person on the bench, stop. Yeah. Don't do any more until we get feedback. Yeah. And you build up a level of trust with the artist when oh, they, all when they <laughs> realize that you're saying stop at the right time. It's all about trust. And yeah. we, we all make mistakes. I, yeah. I could write a book on mistakes I have known and loved, but, <laughs> but there's those oops moments which you try to minimize over time and when those mistakes do happen and they happen we're yeah. human beings making things by hand yeah you things have that have never to. been made before so there's even physical you know there's mistakes of intention but then there's just physical mistakes like it falls over <laughs> like we made or it casting it, defects or yeah. or mis- miscommunications mm-hmm. they happen enough yeah to know that when that happens and you do make a physical mistake or a timing mistake or a color mistake or a calendar mistake, you have to stand behind the work and make it right. Yeah. Which might mean all weekend, all month, all Saturdays, late at night, whatever. You can't miss an exhibition. No. The the, uh, mm-hmm. the opening date of a museum show is not negotiable. <laughs> Very rarely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, talking about the kind of level of detail that... Can- came out of that foundry and still does. I mean, now it's owned by UAP, is that correct? I don't know the exact. Yes, um, let's with. see. Um, so I, I left in 2017 to do my own work and continue working with artists. My couple of my main fellows moved on and opened up their foundry in Kingston. Um, Dick Polich, well into his 80s now, the the Australian-based company UAP yeah. purchased them, yeah. and they're they're now they're a global company, yeah. doing fabrication and work all over the world. Yeah. And the other thing, not sure how to say this. Talix was very intimidating to women artists. Yeah, and that came from the top. That mm. was Dick Polich. Everything you've ever heard was true. <laughs> um, Can I put that in the podcast? 
everything you've ever heard was true? Uh Uh-huh. Absolutely. Okay. No, I just want to check. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Because it's true. Um, I've known Dick for, since I was 17 years old. He's the most complex, predictable, predictably unpredictable man I've ever known. Yeah. Fascinating, innovative, genius, technically strong, but everything you've ever heard is true. Yeah. So he had the good basket and the bad basket. He had these wild, wildly divergent personalities. At the end of the day, he 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 brought that foundry to the state of the art in the yeah. United States. He opened doors and increased the vocabulary for artists without question. We all learned so much working with him, good and bad. Yeah. And what what Andrew and Vinny, who opened up workshop art fabrication, they took the best lessons of their 15-plus years there. They were my go-to guys there. Yeah. And they took the best lessons and opened up their foundry, and they left the bad lessons at the doorstep. Yeah, that's and smart. And to wit, um, many artists just naturally followed them. They've made a safe, welcoming, democratic space particularly for women artists. At Talix, it was a different culture. Yeah, and I think a different era, too. You know, it's coming out of a different time in the art world, Mm -hmm. which maybe mirrored some of those feelings about women artists and monumental sculpture and all these things. Uh, I think now there's a community of fabricators and artisans and artists that don't feel that there's any difference between working with a male artist and a female artist and that women can make effortlessly monumental works and that it, mm-hmm. like there isn't it's just a new era for yeah making i yeah. think that yeah. is less um kind of bogged down with the 50s 60s and 70s kind of mm-hmm. machismo yep yeah and that's that's when i hit the scene 60s 70s and i was thinking about it when i was I'm a good speller. I'm lousy at math, but I did the calculator, <laughs> and I started this when I was 17, and I, I went 20, 20 minus 70, and it's like 49 years. Yeah. And when I was listening, I listened to most of your podcasts. They're all so interesting to me. Thank you. You're welcome. It's really important what you're doing. But you use the term talking to fabricators and thinking about work in the last 20 years, and I thought, oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear, here I am coming in like, you know, the old lady on the hill. Well, no, that's why I'm interviewing you, because I only know what... I, I feel like I only have the right to speak about what I've experienced, which is the of last course. 20 years. I wanted to ask you about the project you're working on now with um, casting of artists' hands. Uh-huh. How did you... What did that come out of? What conversation did that come out of? My father stuck his hand in a bucket of alginate one day, just plunged one hand in, poured a wax, cast a bronze, and that bronze was essentially sitting on the, the, the shelf in his studio. After he passed away and I brought all of the components of his life into my life, I had that wonderful life casting in bronze of this arthritic yeah. stone carver's paw in my studio. And I looked at it every day. And over the years, it, just in quiet moments in the studio, chasing, doing whatever I was doing, I realized how much I cherished 
this bronze and how yeah. much it represented to me and how it represented lessons of tenacity and skill and handcraft and passion. And then I started thinking about all of the extraordinary artists that we, my father and I, I, my friends at the foundries had worked with over the years. And I, I've always seen a certain number of these artists as true makers. Yeah. Who physically made the work with their hands as opposed to conceptual work. And over the years, I'd done a lot of work with Jasper Johns, and often our work sessions ended up with a cup of jasmine tea and talking about our arthritis, just <laughs> like you and I started our work today. That's what yeah. we talk about. Yeah. Right? This is these paws, these mitts, these shapers, these makers. This is, this is the problem. So knowing how much my father's bronze hand spoke to me and knowing what an incredible record of it and how much I cherished it, and now he was gone, I started thinking about, so I called Jasper, and I said, I would like to do this, I would like to record your hand or hands and just make a collection of life castings of these makers of our times, yeah. people who've had an extraordinary impact on American art, and whose materials have impacted their hands. And he just simply said, good idea. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you have some of my heroes <laughs> in the archive. Uh, Huma Baba, Beverly Pepper, Martin Purier. It's a pretty amazing collection of people. Yeah. So in 2013, the New York Foundation of the Arts uh, fiscally sponsored the American Artist Hand Archive which gives me the opportunity to go out and uh, have the 5013C status. Yeah. And it op it's open doors for funding for That's great. through the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Yeah. I got a Rockefeller Brothers Fund grant last year. And now we're, we're pursuing other avenues of grants yeah. and other opportunities. But in the meantime, no matter what is going on, time marches on. Yes. And I have, I just do this. That's why I left the foundry to, fo time. to focus on to this. focus. I didn't want yeah. this to become a. It was a stolen moments project for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew if that if it was ever going to achieve the level I wanted it to, I had yeah. to devote myself full time to it. So before we finish this interview, I'd love to ask you what your favorite tool is. I have to say a spatula. Um, made out of steel, these things develop a, 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 a I mean, they're an extension of the hand. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, there are so many tools in our toolboxes, and I love them all. I mean, I think of a broom. When in doubt, you know, if you don't have a plan, start sweeping the floor. By the time you hit the wall, you should have a plan. <laughs> if, if you don't, at least you'll have a clean floor. So do I choose a broom? But I thought, no, I could do more work with a spatula. Yeah. Um, do you have, like, a like a favorite one? Absolutely. Yeah. Because with my sculpting tools, I have, like, the, the wooden tool that I've worn down to a nub. And exactly. I'm like, but it's the perfect nub. It's the perfect nub.
Thank you so much to Vanessa for sharing her experiences and for hosting us on her porch for a socially distanced and safe COVID-era interview. Listeners are able to see images of the artworks we mentioned today on the Craftsmanship Podcast Instagram feed and on the Talix UAP website at polichtalix.com. You can learn more about Vanessa and specifically the American Artist's Hand Archive by going to vanessahoheb.com. Thank you to all of our listeners and a final credit to the Bryce Arizabaglia Quintet for our lovely theme song titled Mount Fuji. And please check in and subscribe to future episodes at www.craftsmanshippodcast.com.